0: You're listening to Rick Kleffel the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary 5 days a week at trashotron.com/agony. This week I'm podcasting a two-part conversation I had on April 23, 2006 with David Mitchell, the author of Ghostwritten, Number 9 Dream, and Cloud Atlas. From the Agony Column Podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel, and now part one of my conversation with David Mitchell.
1: My eyes spided over my poster of black angelfish turning into white swans, across my map of Middle Earth, around my doorframe, into my curtains, lit fiery mauve by my spring sun, and fell down the well of dazzle. Listening to houses breathe makes you weightless. But a lion's less satisfying if other people aren't up and about, so I jumped out of bed. The landing curtains were still drawn, because Mum and Julia had left for London when it was dark. Dad's away on another weekend conference in Newcastle under Lyme or Newcastle on Tyne. Today, the house is all mine. First, I pissed, leaving the bathroom door wide open. Next, in Julia's bedroom, I put on her Roxy Music LP. Julia would go ape. I turned up the volume dead loud. Dad would go so mental, his head would blow up. I sprawled on Julia's stripy sofa, listening to this kazookering song called Virginia Plain. With my big toe, I flicked the shell disc wind chime Kate Alfric had given her a couple of birthdays ago, just because I could. Then I went through my sister's chest of drawers looking for a secret diary, but when I found a box of tampons, I felt ashamed and stopped. In Dad's chilly office, I opened his filing cabinets and breathed in their metal-flavoured air. A duty-free pack of Benton and Hedges has appeared since Uncle Brian's last visit. Then I twizzled on Dad's Millennium Falcon office chair, remembered it's April Fool's Day, picked up Dad's untouchable phone and said, Hello? Craig Salt? Jason Taylor here. Listen, Salt, you're sacked. What do you mean, why? Because you're a fat orgasm, that's why. Put me through to Ross Wilcox this instant. Ah, Wilcox, Jason Taylor, listen, the vet'll be around later to put you out of our misery. Bye-bye, scumbag, been nasty knowing you. In my parents' creamy bedroom, I sat at Mum's dressing table, spiked my hair with L'Oreal hair mousse, daubed an adamant stripe across my face, and held her opal brooch over one eye. I look through it at the sun, for secret colors nobody's ever named.
0: David Mitchell is the author of Ghost Written, Number Nine Dream, and the Man Booker Prize finalist Cloud Atlas. His new novel is Black Swan Green. Welcome to the program, David.
1: Thank you very much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: David, let's talk a little bit about causality. Causality.
1: <laughs> well, it's uh, it's one of those themes. Um, my first novel is really, it, it has everything I wanted to say about causality. Ghostwritten is kind of, well, amongst other things, it's kind of a list of essays in fiction, each of which is an attempt to answer the question, why do things happen? So, for example... The first section is about a terrorist uh, hiding out in Okinawa. He's a member of a cult and everything happens in that story because he has he's abdicated his will. He's given his will to somebody else to control his cult leader. The second story is quite a sweet story about a teenager who works in a jazz shop in Tokyo. A few strains of Haruki Murakami there I guess. Everything that happens in that story happens because of love. In the third story, not many people have made the connection, but uh, he's, a, uh, he's a 30-year-old who appears in my new book, Black Swan Green, as a 13-year-old, a man called Neil Brose. Everything happens in his story in Ghostwritten and it's the last day of his life. Oh, I've just given an, implor- an, an important plot development away there, haven't I? Put but uh, on this, the last... Day of his life in my first book, everything happens because of greed, uh, etc. Uh, the fourth section, everything happens because of, because of history. Later chapters deal with 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 will, quantum physics, luck, or otherwise known as coincidence. So um, I have no answers to the big questions. Uh, uh, People sometimes think that writers do, but I certainly know I don't. Uh, I, uh, I'm as much in the dark as everybody else. But but what I do like to do is, is, is to dissect the question and to... I'm not sure if there are such things as answers to the big questions. Uh, that's why they're big questions. You can either use faith and decide that one answer is the answer at the expense of all of the others, or you can... Maybe believe in the absence of answers and play with the question and explode the question and implode the question and explore the question and see where the question will go. Try to mine the question for for truth um, and also for beauty. The latter is kind of in tune with my personality, I guess. As a writer, that's what I try to do.
0: I'm want, I'm moved to ask you: Are you familiar with the works of Charles Fort? I'm afraid not. I,
1: I I've I've read about five percent of the books that you have read, Rick. and uh, uh, but uh, I'm I'm so since this is such a lovely studio and a lovely format for an interview, then uh, perhaps you would tell me and your listeners a little bit about him.
0: Charles Fort was a writer in the early 20th century. He was a friend of Theodore Dreiser. He composed an early science fiction novel, which was roundly and soundly rejected by everyone who read it. However, he was also a compulsive collector of newspaper clippings. And he liked to clipped, collect data that he called that was damned by science, things that were ignored by science, missing ships, weird lights in the sky. He was a, essentially the first guy to collect the X-Files. Yeah, yeah, And he published these in a book called The Book of the Damned. And the, one of the themes of Charles Fort's work is in fact coincidence and causality the way things appear to be connected that maybe aren't connected, subtle connections between things that are completely different, and this is a, a theme that we see in in your work a lot. So I'm, it seemed like it might be informed by Charles Fort.
1: Well, I, I'm, you've made me interested in the book, kind of the the nascent Fox Mold that would would certainly be worth looking up. Um, I. I sometimes think that, well, both metaphor uh, is the act of finding th- um, common elements in apparently unconnected things. And in turn, metaphor, it's something, it's, it's kind of the, it's it's at the root of the human imagination. I think the the intellect, which I, which in some ways I regard as the opposite of the imagination, the intellect w- uh, will take one thing and try to sort of X-ray it and penetrate it and look inside this one thing. The imagination it actually takes two things and kind of finds finds somehow what it is that is between. The, the space between these two things. I'm not explaining this very well, but 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 the idea that a wardrobe could also be a door into uh, another world. Since I just saw the line in which a wardrobe on uh, on the flight uh, on the way over here this morning. Um, that's in my mind. That 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 that's a beautiful jump of the imagination. Uh, that a wardrobe could also be a door. A wardrobe isn't a door, but in the imagination, it is. Uh, and where does this link come from? What is it? And the answer is the imagination for me. Um, <laughs> and I, th- I also th- sometimes think this is sort of what drives not just writers along, but, uh, but what drives scientists and discoverers uh, and, and, and inventors along as well. It, 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 it's the ability to not see a thing, but the space between two things and, and the manipulation of that space.
0: That's a fascinating thought. It's also the root of language too, because language is is not the thing. When we say "door," that's not a door. That's just a sound that comes out of our mouth, but it's it conjures the door.
1: In a way, yeah. Uh, in a way, every word uh, in sociurian terms. Uh, he, he's um, somewhat out of favor in linguistics, but he, he is kind of the well, one of the founding fathers of the discipline in Sosurian terms I believe that the, that the door is a signifier and the object that is a door is a signified and I would agree that the same gap between um, between imagined object A and imagined object B is also the gap between the signifier and the signified, uh, between uh, the noise that the human speech system is capable of making and the object that in Any given language, that noise will represent. Uh, Yes, I agree.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something that I find really interesting that seems to run through your fiction, this idea of invisibility. You have invisible narrators. There are invisible connections. You talk a little bit about in Cloud Atlas about this idea of breathing the atoms that were breathed by another person. These mm-hmm. kind of invisible connections. What is it that fascinates you about invisibility,
1: Vic? I've never thought about it, uh, which means that uh, I don't have a polished spiel for the listeners of this podcast. But it also means that, um, however hazily my language is, it'll be um, there. Will be original thoughts, I hope. Invisibility. Um, it's more interesting than visibility the invisible man is, is 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 a novel. There would there there could be no such novel called the visible man. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, uh well you have an invisible narrator in ghostwritten. Yeah, yeah I do. Disembodied mm-hmm. consciousnesses.
1: These these recurring themes, and now I think about it I'll agree that invisibility is a recurring theme or recurring motif in my books at least. Where do they come from? Uh, Why do some writers always write about, why do all writers have a relatively small group of archetypal themes they perpetually hark back to? Uh, And I think by my fourth or fifth book I've noticed this happening, I don't really intend to write about Power, but I end up writing about power. Uh, I, I don't intend to write about um, language, invisibility, causality, these things, um, cultural displacement. But 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 they keep rearing their heads time and time again. Uh, and the answer, even though it's still an, a vague, unthought-out one, is that it has to be deep down in our personalities. Uh, it, it it actually comes from who we are. Uh, I think a person. Not just writers, I think all people, we have a small number of recurring themes that time and time again, they appear in our lives and influence our lives. The one step in the case of a writer is it's not our lives, it's our books, although they probably influence our lives just as much as non-writers as well. How do they get there? I don't know. Um, Early childhood developmental experiences, maybe even genetic for all I know.
0: Uh, well, you have a narrator. Your narrator in your new novel, Black Swan Green, he has a couple of invisible friends. Yeah, yeah. And um, he sees ghosts. He he has uh, 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 the hangman. There are mythic ghosts and witches, fairy food. You have all sorts of interesting kind of themes that, that things you can't see but your narrators believe exist.
1: I... In, in the case of black Swan Green, I p- press these things into service to sh- to show that at the beginning of the book, he's still a boy, whereas they he, he either gains some degree of control over them, or they fade into the background. Or in the case of a witch, she turns out not to have been a witch at all, but an old woman with incipient Alzheimer's uh, in the final chapter, which has the same name as the first chapter, The January Man. So he does do these things. In the case of Black Swan Green, they are, in they are the hand servants of of the kind of the, the arc of maturity that uh, Jason traverses in the course of the novel. But while the other world's an exciting one, the the subtle, the partly concealed, yes, it does sort of crank my handle more than the obvious and the unconcealed. I'm not alone in that. We 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 uh, we're more interested in what might be behind the door, than than the room where the door is standing open. I think, because maybe it's a Schrodinger's cat thing. What is invisible or partly concealed? It's still, it's still in touch with the infinite. It could be anything in that box. It could be anything behind the door. It could be anything in the wardrobe. <laughs> what is but 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 the moment you know that infinity is 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 gone it's one thing uh it's a there's nothing in the box or there's just um just just an old shoe in 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 the wardrobe or whatever
0: one of the things that interested me about black swan green was the setting it seems to me to a certain extent your novels have been it's almost as if David Mitchell started out as a satellite orbiting the world and he's finally crash-landed in the place <laughs> where, he, where he grew up. I,
1: I didn't want to write about... Uh, well, I was allergic to the idea of writing what by that point I had realized would be a stereotypical first novel. I also kind of didn't want to go there. Um, my speech impediment for years and years was quite a painful thing. I didn't want to sort of look at or try to understand well i wanted to understand it but uh, but 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 yeah uh, i I just didn't want to go there uh and of course I, I just didn't think as most kids do that there's anything remotely remarkable about the place where i am from uh, which is
0: herefordshire uh,
1: i lived there when we came back from japan but i was born in worcestershire okay uh, in, in a village called hanley swan uh, which i changed only slightly to get to black swan green Plus, it makes a better title for a book, I think. Yet, yeah, like all kids, all I wanted to do was get out of there as quickly as possible, please. And only, kind of, since I've say become a dad myself, and and uh, and and maybe more confident as a writer, and feel an obligation to, well, to to mine truth in whatever forms, whatever alloys, whatever nuggets I can find it. I mean, since these changes in my life have have, I felt that uh, it's time to stop trying to kind of grab the world by its neck and dr- drag it, kicking and st- and screaming, and 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 transmuting it into words and putting it into a book. That's kind of my first three books, but 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 then, more recently, no, no I I I I wanted to sort of write something with no more sophisticated. Uh, Toolbox and Raymond Carver used when he wrote, or um, not that I try to write like Carver, but one of the many reasons I admire h- him is just his absence of tricks. It's just prose and people, and and my God, they're wonderful. And so I kind of had a uh, <laughs> another very early midlife crisis, <laughs> not really, uh, but in my writing uh, i've it's it was it's certainly a change of direction but i um, didn't know if i could do it and you know i still don't know if i can but uh but it's I, i'd sort of proved to myself that maybe i could write with my first three books that that, that, that i could write books that um s- that are in orbit and stay in orbit uh, and and do innovative things with structure and make experiments and kind of perhaps in my own small way push forward the frontiers of what the novel can do that's quite a grandiose thing to say about myself i don't really mean it but but but, but that's kind of what i mean i suppose uh but more recently uh, i've sort of yeah i've just been more interested in
0: well this has this book has life's rich pageant this is this book is bursting with with life
1: on as mute uh, on as minute a stage as I could manage, with as small a cast as possible. Well it's got quite a big cast, but but um, but, but but the stage is very small. It never leaves. It's confined in time. It's just nineteen eighty two. It stays in one person's head. Not an adult's head, not a not a, a a composer's head, not a not the head of someone who's been alive for fifty or sixty years. Just a thirteen year old boy who's sort of started out. I don't wish to advertise the book uh here, but I just sort of wish to say that that, that 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 I wanted to confine myself as much as possible, um, so that I so so that I was forced to kind of look inwards and and keep things micro rather than kind of explode things into macro.
0: You do a beautiful job of conveying this point of view. It's very subtle and, and it's very effective. It, it, tell us a little bit about writing from a naive point of view, because one of the things from the very first page of this novel, we as readers are aware of the character's world in ways that the character isn't. And this is a beautiful trick. You say in a sense that you've abandoned tricks, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. I think that you've just refocused them in a different way, and not that it's a trick so much, but it's an interesting technique. So tell us a little bit about how you developed that.
1: Well, that's the deployment of dramatic irony, which, 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 which even the Greeks knew. Uh, I shouldn't say even the Greeks knew, which which the Greeks knew. You get your audience knowing things that the uh, people they're watching don't know. And it's that that makes people say, no! Which is what you want in a writer, cause that's, uh, as a writer, because uh, that makes the reader turn the page. It's that, no! It's that howl. <laughs> um uh, yeah one of the challenges of the books uh, of Black Swan Green was how do you have a naive voice without turning him into a Holden Caulfield Uh, I I didn't want him to be a child genius I want him to I wanted him to be a believable kid he seems Uh, totally believable thank you Uh, yet he also has to be interesting enough to engage an adult reader uh, for 280 pages Um, and because in fact the way most 13 year olds speak no disrespect to 13 year olds um but uh on the whole uh you know that the, uh, their well, their minds are 13 year olds minds and uh um to stay with them for a long time for an adult is potentially a, a frustrating confining thing to do so so that's what I tried to do how i tried to achieve this was well, the predictable tricks in the book—the one you just mentioned, dramatic irony—spice um, it up a little bit with these v- voices he hears in his head, which he names uh, the Hangman, which is a, a sort of personification of his stammer, which, 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 which I think is quite an interesting topic for non-stammers as well, because there's not just there's not that much information about it.
0: It's fascinating
1: theme. Uh, um, Thank you. Uh, also the unborn twin who's a sort of Mr. Hyde to his Dr. Jekyll or is it a Dr. Jekyll to his Mr. Hyde he's the evil one anyway. in he, he, Sort of, a, he's a sort of force of anarchy and and nihilism who who rears his head in the book and and, and I've got one more uh, the maggot.
0: Maggot yes. He I love maggot. He's a
1: spineless scared nervous coward uh Kids, I think I did in a way they 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 do um partition um the multitude of voices that we still hear in our adult heads, I think not um I express that wrongly no, I don't hear voices in my head. well, I do when I write in a way, but but, but that's a different matter um what I wish to say is um it seemed a plausible sort of act of a boy to name these things and kind of distinguish them from himself. The other ways that I tried to make a plausible yet engaging narrative was um, vehicles, I call them accidental poetry and accidental wisdom. Uh, accidental poetry is where um, a kid who hasn't yet sort of, hasn't yet memorized the adult, language maps, the, 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 the uh, stock phrases that we acquire, the cliches, if you like, uh, that, that we use when we converse through, through tried and tested experience. Kids don't always necessarily have these in place yet. They will accidentally, sometimes, say things that are breathtakingly fresh and breathtakingly original. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying my language
0: is There's quite a bit of beautiful poetry in the prose.
1: It needs to feel accidental, uh, otherwise Jason is a young Rambo, and I've lost it. Uh, I'm in the French Rambo, of course, not the Sylvester Stallone <laughs> Rambo. Um, uh, accidental wisdom, again, it, it's just these, these little kind of realizations that you and I may edit out a bit, or or kind of feel equivocal about saying because we think about it a bit before we speak, and we kind of think, no, that's only half true, or and so. Jason might kind of say in order to get what you really want, you have to kind of convince the world that you don't want it and then the world will realise that uh, you want a threat and it'll kind of accidentally hand it to you. Now, this is something I partly feel, but I'd feel nervous about saying it on live radio because it's only kind of partly true, but for a kid without those inhibitions, without that kind of on-board editor, they can sometimes speak forth and... uh, and I tried to do that for Jason from time to time.
0: One of the things you have a lot of fun with too is the, the beautiful power of hindsight. Look, Looking at, at this 20 years ago time, it, here's a theme that, that I think, it, that I found very powerful in here was the, the concept of war that runs through this book. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of wars. Well, I chose 1982 because um
1: because it was the Falklands War in April and May of that month, just beginning of June as well, I think. And it was, a uh, looking back, pounds, hindsight, Rick, as you say, it was a major event in, in my generation's youth. Uh, it changed the course of British history. It Mrs. Thatcher was the most unpopular prime minister since records began uh, before the Falklands. She had presided over a, an economic recession, which she had partly caused and certainly aggravated the uh necessity of that recession is something historians and economic historians kind of can do and will continue to to debate but um but but the Falklands came along she won it she won it that's how it felt and the rest of the 80s is uh were hers kind of she didn't only win the Falklands she won the 1980s in, in in terms of her own political career, it instilled in 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 Great Britain a, a, a kind of post-imperial yet imperial fever when the war was happening, and and an arrogance which, in some ways, continues to this day.
0: Uh, well, it reads so much like America going into iraq yeah um, the parallels just are striking
1: um i i I was i was writing the Falklands chapter looking back it would have been a couple of years ago when uh was it three years no it's i think we're yeah three years ago it was the third anniversary the other day wasn't it uh and and that was in the background when i was working it was i mean there are uh, th- this is an example as a and b and what is the nature of the space between them what we what i talked about earlier is exactly what we're doing now we're finding kind of um common elements between um the Falklands and Iraq Iraq as we say in my part of the world um the thing about the Falklands is that it was it it it, it was it's it was like a football match you, you you kind of won or you lost you got the islands back or you didn't um, at the time, niceties like is it really worth spending is this ruinously expensive quantity of money over a pile of rocks no one had heard about before the Falklands War and no one's heard about now, really. These things came afterwards. At the time, it was a winnable thing. Uh, it was won, there's a victory, football match, thank you, let's go home now. It wasn't like Iraq in that... There's none of this insurgency, none of this um, turning our countries into magnets for terrorist attacks. None of this um, day by day paying into a bank of hatred that our children will, 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 will still be paying for generations from now, I fear, from the Arab world. It, it was so simple, so uncomplicated, so black and white and uh and maybe perhaps sort of that's how kids see the world as well in some ways it was a childlike war like kids playing at war uh that's how i felt about it then feel about it now and uh uh of course in reality it wasn't but i do feel that's how we felt about it uh and maybe that's also why it's appropriate to have it in uh black Swan green as well as with the 13 year old narrator the, the other wars in the novel, you were saying, Rick, sorry.
0: The other wars, the war between the
1: parents. The war between the parents, yeah, yeah. Um, Jason's mentor in the book, Madam Cromerlink, who uh, who appears in Cloud Atlas as a 16-year-old girl but is now in her mid-60s across the English Channel, makes a comparison between Jason's poem about the Falklands because he's a... a You know, uh, he's a closet poet, Uh, the war in Jason's house. um, Were you a closet poet? Yes, I was a closet poet. And I even, like Jason, put at night poems through the vicar's letterbox in the hope that they would be printed in the parish magazine. And they were. But I won't tell you the name that I... uh, (laughs) my pen name... Um, some things will, will remain veiled in mystery forever.
0: <laughs> did
1: did your parents divorce? No, they didn't. Okay. Um, it's the uh, same stage, and the same language, and the same times, but uh, my f- family was a lot happier than Jason's. Luckily for me. Tell um, us a
0: little, a little bit about this idea of autobiographical fiction. We've ha- heard a lot recently about memoirs that are heavily fictionalized that are supposed to be true. So you're kind of taking an opposite approach with this novel, aren't you?
1: Uh, I guess. I am... I, um, mm, what do I have to say on this subject? Not a lot, really. Um, I f- felt, as I said earlier, uh, reticence about writing myself, uh, writing about myself. um. And... Mm. I certainly kind of didn't want to kind of do anything that smacked of a memoir or an autobiography. I mean, I'm only thirty-seven. I, I kind of haven't earned the right yet. Uh, nor maybe would I want to when I'm older. I think um, all novels are in a way autobiographical. Uh, even Stephen King's novels are in a way autobiographical because they're from him, and these archetypes of his and every writer's personality will, whether we like it or not, influence to a great degree what goes on in the book. It's just I just wanted to write about this world. My curiosity is a kind of allure unto unto itself. It decides what my next book wants to be and I kind of follow along in its wake like a man trying to tame a fairly ill-trained lurcher. It kind of goes off and sniffs out what 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 is interesting to it and uh, and and uh, and and i'm left sort of in its wake and 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 i have to go where it goes and and i write the books that my curiosity is interested in uh quite why my curiosity was was interested in this i haven't really worked out but uh but it was and so here's the book that sounds like an evasive answer i don't mean it to be rick but 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 i i honestly don't really know why i choose the books i choose to write uh, other than that, I'm curious about the theme. I'm curious to see if I can make it work or not.
0: It seems to me a bit that you were curious if you could pull the form off. Mm. Because you you do a great job in this novel. And I, I'd like you to talk about creating the forward motion that, that keeps you reading. Because this novel is, is riveting. And exciting and fun to read. Thank you. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. And also I I'm very curious about your writing process. That all of your work seems to be a little bit based around almost uh, short stories Mm-mm. put sure. together as novels. So tell tell us a little bit about why you choose to do that.
1: Well, there's two questions there and luckily I can answer both of them at once really. Um I well before I started writing even my first novel and uh, and and i think this um attitude is widespread the, the really intimidating thing about writing a novel is is its size is so big i used to feel like i uh, i used to ask myself am i really the kind of person who could possibly write a novel um, as in complete a novel they're really easy to start uh like a like a year's diary they're, they're, they're easy to start but Getting past January the 6th, that's the problem. And it just seems, it just seems as large as a mountain. And the answer is no. Uh, I couldn't write novels, and I think to a degree I still can't. Uh, the only way I could see to go about doing it uh, was breaking it down into smaller units and smaller subunits and sub-subunits. But that's OK, because this is what novels are anyway. Uh, what's different is just the degree to which this is visible. Um, in nineteenth-century novels, for example, when they were literally serialized in magazines, uh, it, the, 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 this form that the borders between the sub-subunits and the subunits and the units uh, were kind of marked because it was next week; it was a different magazine. Uh, there were novels in the twentieth century recently, where the the borders between the subunits are all but invisible, but nonetheless they're there. So, what I really did is just um make the act of writing these cathedral mountain-sized things more handleable by writing short stories which happen to fit together in a coherent way. My first, yeah, well, my first three. Novels not only not only did this, but sort of explored the virtues of doing this, and and, and explored the pe- um, potential for innovation through doing this. So, for example, in my first book, I have a sequence of short stories, but 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 things that happen in one have a direct causal effect on things that happen in the next, and uh, and and the next couldn't happen had a key event not happened in its predecessor. And I uh, sort of exploit these um, borders between subunits or chapters or stories in novels in different ways in my second and third books. In this one, well, my fourth book, here I am, I'm still doing it. I'm I'm working on my fifth book now, and it's a long novel made of six novellas. Each novella is 18 chapters long, uh, nine of them told alternately by one narrator, nine by another. Uh, still doing it, and it's, it's the only way I know how to write novels. But, uh, but the potential is so big in, 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 in this form, I'm not really worried about repeating myself here. But I think, really, I'm just doing what everybody does. Uh, it, it, you know, if you didn't do this, that, that, then, then, then you'd be working on something for two or three years before you had any kind of buzz or any fulfillment of completion. By writing it in units, you kind of pay yourself the fulfillment by having something done in a few weeks or a few months that you then need to kind of get yourself to launch yourself into the next one uh If you didn't do this then then then, then you'd have to go three years without any kind of a sense of completion and uh I don't think I could handle that to be honest uh I like every few days or a few weeks to kind of hey. Here's a scene. It's a really nice scene. Let's polish this scene a bit. Let's see if we make it fit with its predecessor and the one that comes after a bit and uh, oh this is lovely. What a nice well-rounded, well-honed, well-crafted scene. Done. Finished. Great. What's the next one? If you write in sub the way I do, at least kind of uh you 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 get this forward momentum as you work, as you write.
0: Even though Black Swan green reads as a very straightforward narrative. It's linear, it's simple, it's charming, it, it, it it's beautifully written, it's involving. Thank I you. think there's a lot of ambition in there. Yeah. it it, uh, it's, it yeah. reminds me a bit of uh Joyce's Ulysses. There's echoes of Ulysses. There oh, there's I a a journey through there, the journey through the uh the cave. Uh oh bridal path the bridal path uh,
1: yeah that's uh, the um, beginning of that section is is, is is the extract I read from at the beginning of this program um, yes that's right just as Jason has to be uh, his voice as I said earlier has to be both plausible but engaging the book itself has to be plausibly simple and in a way naive but also subtle and complex enough to engage uh, a potentially jaded reader who's read a million and one coming-of-age novels, first novels quite often about adolescence. Um, and to achieve this I, 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 the book has to have depths. Um, there's, there are literary echoes. Um, there's a lot of Ovid in The Bridal Path. Things are always changing into other things. There's metamorphosis and myth in it. It's also a kind of Huckleberry Finn through sex and madness. (laughs) Uh, I I love the films of David Lynch, and and, and, and I'm sort of influenced by him in some ways to an unhealthy degree. One of my favorite words is omnivoracity to read omnivorously to make the things that come into my head and maybe my life as 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 diverse and omnivorous as possible uh in the hope that this can make my output equally omnivorous and from book to book I hope equally
0: excuse me equally fresh this is uh, this is exactly this is a perfect description of your work because you do seem to there's no boundaries for you. There seems to be no place that you're afraid to or disinclined to go. You just go where the narrative leads you. Uh,
1: thank you again. Um, I do my best. I'm, 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 I'm still learning. Um, I fear it, it, it won't be till my fifties or sixties, even before I'm as good as I hope I will be one day. I, and I don't know if I if I ever get there. But I write in order to learn how to get there. That's the number one reason. And the fulfillment I'm talking about. That's Number two, uh, just th- your, your previous remark relates back to your previous question in, in a way. If you um, divide into subunits, you can um, also give each subunit a theme or a purpose distinct from all the other subunits. A flavor. A flavor uh, of its own. January Man, the first chapter, for example, is, is it flirts with fairy tale, really a uh, dark Halloween boys story. fairy tale sure uh, it flirts with it without ever quite going there it has to do other things that f- that, that, that 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 kind of you that, that the first few pages of a novel also uh, does but but um but that's its flavor the uh second chapter where he visits his speech therapist that 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 um that is a miniature essay about
0: stammering and language. It's a fascinating observation, uh, and I wanted to discuss that with you a little bit. I'll go for it. Um, the The idea of of stammering and speech impediments it's it's a way the way you deal with this is fascinating because it gets right down to the concept of language of filtering between what's in our brains and what comes out of our mouths yeah, yeah, and um, the filters that are re- deliberate and You don't have to think
1: about it uh, unless you're a fellow stammerer who is hiding it extremely well. Uh, you don't have to think about it. Uh, you have a thought and you effortless, uh, effort, effortlessly transform that thought into speech and uh, you take it for granted in the same way that I take vision for granted. Most of the time I don't think about light. I don't think about seeing. Uh, And I kind of feel the same rueful, pointless and long since handled by removing its sting envy um, of your gift that a blind person might feel the same kind of envy towards my gift with sight. Um, A stammerer, as Jason explains in the book, um, it's kind of like getting out of a labyrinth with landmines at the middle is what we want to say the exit is the words that we will produce to try and represent what is in the middle of the labyrinth and we have to work out how to avoid words that begin with letters that we tend to stammer on which Obviously, isn't going to be a very effective solution in the long term because uh, because the twenty six sounds, well, the forty odd phonemes of of, of English uh, recur a lot, and uh, and that's a tall order. So in time, we need to evolve other strategies to short, to shorten the distance, to um, shorten the gap between thought and speech. Um, but a kind of middle in terms of sophistication strategy is to um look ahead at words that will be coming up in 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 the sentence ahead or in the sentence we've embarked upon and steer the sentence in such ways that we can navigate around these dodgy we should say here dicey words that's one but and and that's also what writers do of course We, we we also uh make a plethora of split second decisions and assessments and value judgments about about words and about language when we work. We also we also do something else that stammerers do, which is to think about the music of language. I sometimes think that a word is a musical note, a sentence is a musical phrase. And you can continue this metaphor all the way up if you like. A book is a kind of a symphony. And this is also something that you kind of need to be something of a specialist in language production to um, be able to do. And whatever your impediment or your handicap or your disability may be, after you are done wasting time on trying to make it disappear through willpower, after you are done trying to make it disappear by somehow rebooting your circuits, in my case, my sort of speech circuits, after you've had the fairly liberating realizations that, nope, these things ain't going to work, then where you are left with, them, where you are left, and, and this is the single most kind of helpful thought I've ever had about speech impediments. And what I dearly wish I could phone up my 13-year-old self, Jason here, well, he's not really me, but that's a different subject, uh, to say is that they're your friends. Befriend them. They're, they're your informants. They make you a specialist. They, can, they are as good dictators of your future life as any and probably better than most. Uh, they give you a kind of a gift. And that gift is expertise in this area. The thing you can't do is also what what you're an expert in. It's what you know about. It's painfully earned knowledge, but nonetheless it's knowledge and you can use that knowledge in positive ways. It doesn't have to be this sort of awful danger well, it doesn't have to be hangman. It doesn't have to be this dangerous enemy inside you that will make your life hell. If you think about it in the right way, if you try to understand it and learn from it, uh, it can be a gift. God damn it, it can be a gift.
0: (laughs) From the Agony Column Podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel. You've just heard the first part of my two-part conversation with David Mitchell. Please join me in the second portion of the interview where David talks about genre fiction, humor, and how it is all Ursula K. Le Guin's fault that we get to read his work. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, The Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.